Today is the second Sunday in the season of Lent, and I pray it's been a great season for you of dying in order to live more and more in the life and the formation of Christ. And so I pray that God has been, had peace upon you as there's been some sacrifice in your life and some doing without, some mortification of sin. I pray that Christ has been uh, so present with you, drawing your heart more and more to him and giving you greater loves and desires for him as well. And then today also we're continuing our walk through the book of Romans. We're in uh, our 34th message. So we've been walking through it for a while. If you missed any of it, you can go back and listen to it as well. But uh, it's, been, it's been a great love of mine just preaching through the book of the Bible. And, and there's a lot of things in life that I do love. I love Jesus. I love my wife. I love my kids. I love my family. I love this church. I love my friends. I love gluten. I love carbs. I love the Dallas Cowboys, especially when that one player took and threw that ball to that other player and they scored this points and everyone went, everyone went, yay, sports team, game. And so I love, you can tell I love football. Um, and I love a lot of things, but one of the things I really do love, I love to talk. If you've been around me for two seconds, you're like, that guy can talk. He can fill a room with a bunch of words. I love talking. I love words. I love conversations. I am somewhat of a conversationalist. I just like to talk. I like to listen to people, hear people's stories. Um, well, the Apostle Paul, I'm going to say as well, I think that guy loved words. And that guy loved to talk. And uh, today, what we're going to see in the book of Romans is he's going to have a conversation, I believe, with the Old Testament. And so you're going to see his interaction, I believe, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, within uh, our text today, where he's interacting with the Old Testament, which I think he's kind of giving us an example that Christians were supposed to interact with this book. Because this is not just any book. It's just not an archaic text written by a bunch of old dead people. No, no, no. This is a, a living and active word from God. And so if we want to hear a word from God, you basically just open this up and you will hear from him. Uh, you don't have to go there, but Hebrews 4 explains this in the Bible. It says, for the word of God is living and active. It's not dead and in it. It's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's scary, isn't it? That may be the reason why some of us avoid the word. Because it cuts us every time. But it doesn't cut us like a chainsaw. It cuts us like a great surgeon's scalpel, removing the cancer of sin in our lives. And no creature is hidden from its sight, his sight, which is interesting. He calls the word his, which is his word. But all are naked and exposed to the eye of him to whom we must give an account. And so uh, Paul today in our text, I believe, is having a conversation. Paul's in the New Testament, that's Romans, uh, earlier, years, centuries earlier. We have what's called the Old Testament. And he's interacting with the text. Now, some may have accused Paul of like, hey, Paul, you're kind of taking some liberties here with the Old Testament or maybe taking some of it out of context. But Paul is uh, really teaching with the proper context the Old Testament. Now, some people don't always preach in the proper context. I just saw this um, Valentine's Day recently from Joel Osteen. I thought it was really cute. Hello, I'm Joel Osteen. You must be context because I want to take you out. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> About 30 of you are like, I got that. That's funny. The rest of you are like, huh? It's okay. It's funny nonetheless. Uh, but what, what Paul is doing is that he is putting on his Christological lenses. Uh, you're like, what is Christological lenses? He's seeing the Bible as it should be read from this standpoint of the redemptive timeline. 
Jesus, or Paul's putting on his Jesus goggles, if you will. And when he reads the Old Testament, he can see that the Old Testament from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Malachi is talking about a Messiah, one who's going to come and fulfill all the promises of the God. Now, on this side of it, we know the name of the Messiah, and the Messiah is? And so everything in the Old Testament is about Jesus. I don't say that. The Bible says that. Jesus said this post-resurrection. He said this in Luke 24. Then he said to them, the, Jesus said, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, that's Jesus, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is a summary of the Old Testament, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And so what Paul is doing, he's understanding the scriptures rightly, knowing that every one of the 66 books of the Bible is all about Jesus. And so that's what we're going to do today. So if you've got a Bible, go to Romans chapter 10. That's where we're going to spend our time. Romans 10. If you don't have a Bible here at Grace Point Church, we always say you're going to need one. We lead, teach, and preach from the Bible. We have them in English and Spanish at these tables. Out at Center Point, you can download the Version app on your phone. Click events and Grace Point Church stuff will pop up there. Um, if you've missed any of Romans, basically Paul is talking to a church made up of Jewish people who have come to know Christ and Gentile, which would be non-Jewish people who came to know Christ. And he's telling them that um, by your law abiding or your lawlessness, by your religious activity or irreligious activities, by whatever you're trying, you can't save yourself. Only Jesus can save you. So we must place our faith and trust in Jesus. And he's going to do more of that, especially speaking to the Jewish people from the Old Testament. So Romans chapter 10, verse 5. Are you there? You guys ready? All right, let's do it. For Moses, and so there's a big uh, activator there. If you're sitting in the church 2,000 years ago and you are, have Jewish uh, roots, Jewish family, when you hear Moses, you're like, that's my guy. Moses is my guy. He's, he, you're thinking Old Testament. You're thinking law. For Moses writes about the righteousness. When he says righteousness, he means being right with God. He writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. What is he talking about? Well, this is where he's hyperlinking. This is where he's bringing about Old Testament. He's talking about Leviticus 18. I know you woke up this morning like, man, I hope we get into some Leviticus. I can't wait. <laughs> you don't have to go there. I'll kind of explain Leviticus 18. At this point, uh, God is cautioning, God is warning Israel to not be like the, the Egyptians in which they left and the Canaanites in which they're going to. They're like, hey, don't be like them. Don't act like them. Uh, don't live like them. If you live like them, you will not flourish. Why? Because that's not how humans were designed by God to flourish. Uh, and you think about what were the Egyptians doing? What were the Canaanites doing? They were doing things like human sacrifice, false God worship, outlandish sexual acts, and uh, basically enslaving other human beings. And then what God is trying to save them from is all that because that's not how humans are designed to function and flourish. God is saying, live by my ways, trust me, love me. That's how humans flourish. That's how we flourish. Trust the Lord. Love God. So Paul's understanding this uh, Leviticus 18 from a redemptive standpoint, meaning when Paul writes this, that's way beyond uh, Moses' writing in Leviticus, hundreds, thousands, years later. And so this is post-Jesus coming, post-cross, post-resurrection, post-ascension. And so he's starting to see the bigger picture of redemption. That's why he says this. And here comes the but. 
verse 6. He says, but, so don't say you're going to live by the law. He says, but the righteousness based on faith, being right with God by faith says, now here comes some really confusing text, and here we go. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Now notice what's next. Those are called parentheses, right? Okay, this is Paul's interaction. That is to bring Christ down, verse 7. Who will descend into the abyss? Parentheses. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. Parentheses. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So this is a conversation that Paul is having with another selection from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 30. So keep your finger in Romans and go all the way back to Deuteronomy. That would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. Okay, so it's your fourth book in the Bible, which is uh, one of a five-book series called the Torah or the, um, the, the Book of the Laws or the Pentateuch, which is five as well. So this is Moses' writing in Deuteronomy chapter 30. You got it this morning like, man, if we don't get in Leviticus, at least Deuteronomy, please. I know, I know that's what you're saying. Uh, so what's going on here? Well, this is a time in which uh, God's people have been bad. <laughs> Surprise. And uh, God's having a covenant renewal with them. He's saying, hey, if you will follow me, if you will love me, and I'm going to do a lot in that, uh, then you will live. But if you do not, uh, you will be cursed. You want blessings? Follow me. If not, then you will be cursed. And so uh, he's, he's, Paul's taking Deuteronomy 30 and putting on his Jesus goggles and reading it that way. But what does Deuteronomy 30 say? It says this. And I think this is perfect for Paul. Uh, to apply Jesus in. And when all these things come upon you, this is the prophet, this is, this is God speaking through Moses. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God. What does return to the Lord mean? What's one word? Repent. Right, it means to repent. When you've turned back, repenting is turning away from sin, turning away from idolatry, turning away from false God worship, demonic God worship, and turning to the Lord. Repent, it's good. Return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and all your soul. There's some clues right there. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. If you've been with us at all through the book of Romans, Paul's talked a lot about God's mercy. And he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcast or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. So far, so good, am I right? Sign us up for this covenant. Verse 6, pay attention to the action in verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your offspring. Who's going to do the work? Right. If you remember back in Romans, Paul talks about the circumcision of your heart, not the flesh. Remember that? And so this is Old Testament language. God's going to circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord. Who's going to make you love the Lord? Who's going to do an action for you? to love the Lord. Who's going to do it? That's right, okay? That's very, Paul's preaching the same thing, Romans 9 and uh, earlier, um, that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Why? Because humans live and flourish and function when we love God, period. 
And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecute you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all of his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand and the fruit of your room, the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your father's when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, first five books, and you will turn to the Lord. What does turn to the Lord mean? Repent. Your God with all your, when you turn to the Lord to your God with all your heart and with all your soul, verse 11. For this commandment, now here we go. This is connecting to Paul. This is a conversation. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down to us that we may hear it and, what's the last two words? Do it, do it, okay? Neither is it beyond the sea or the depths that you should say, who will go over to the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and, what's the words? But the word is very near to you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can. Now, Go back to Romans. I want you to see this something real quick. Something is amiss here. When you look at uh, Romans 10, 6, 7, and 8, those two words, do it, are omitted. Paul omitted them and instead added parentheses. This is the conversation Paul's having. Now, if you were to look at Deuteronomy and keep reading it, which I'd say, go home and read it. It's really good. Uh, but if we were to look at that, the blessings and the curse, if we're not careful, we'll think, well, I'm a good person. I get these blessings. But this idea is that you have to do the commands and do the word perfectly. So we're a little, little bit of trouble there. But Paul's putting on his Jesus goggles. And when he reads Deuteronomy 30 in light of the new covenant in Christ, Paul reads this with a, a view of the entire narrative of salvation, that the Messiah has come that God has come down, there's an incarnation, that God has taken on flesh, that the Messiah has lived Deuteronomy 30 out perfectly in our place, and that the Messiah also has gone to the other side. He lived out the blessings perfectly, but he also lived out the curse perfectly, that Messiah would come and take on the curse on our behalf and become the curse for us and die for us, in return giving the blessings to us. Paul has another comment on this in, in one of his writings in the book of Galatians. You don't have to go there, but I want to show you this because I think it's important. Galatians 3.10. He says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Do you hear that? For all those who rely on being good enough, you're under a curse. For all those relying on their religious activity and endeavor to cover them with God, you're under a curse. That's what Paul's saying, am I right? Yeah. For it is written, this is Old Testament, he's talking about now, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things. What does all things mean? That's the whole of the Old Testament, all 613 laws. Cursed is anyone who's not abided by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. He said it very clear. No one can be saved by the law. For the righteous shall live by, what's the word? But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. That's what his quote was early in Romans as well. Christ redeemed us from the curse of law. How did he do it? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Old Testament, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. 
the, the uh, Jewish people thought whenever you hang, would hang on a tree, whenever you were hung or whenever you were crucified, you were cursed by God. Imagine the Jewish people at the time of Jesus seeing this supposed Messiah hung on a cross. They probably thought, well, uh, that's not the guy because our scripture says cursed is everyone who hung on the tree. But Jesus is hanging on there and taking that cursing for who? There you go. Man, you guys, nailing it. Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, pointing back to Genesis, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Here, here's, what, here's what Paul's doing. Paul is, uh, he's in there. There's Jewish people who come to know Jesus. Gentile came to know Jesus. And he is stripping them and us of any inkling, any idea, any thoughts that we think that we can save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. They can't save themselves. Now, he inserts Christ into the, to the text, I believe, properly. Look back at verse 6 in Romans 10. You guys still with me? You follow me? I don't want to lose you, but I, I want you guys to have a, a thick, robust view of Christ in all the scriptures. And so he says in verse 6, but there, I always thought to myself, what if you said no? I would talk longer. You have been conditioned to say, yes, we get it. Stop talking. No, anyway. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. And so what Paul's doing, I believe, is rightly interpreting the Old Testament in light of Christ. And he says right here that who can go up and get Jesus? And the answer is nobody. Who can go down and get Jesus? And the answer is nobody. Meaning we can't do that either. When he talks about going, um, he talks about coming down, I, I think he's properly pointing to the incarnation of Christ. That Jesus has always existed as the Son, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, always existed, and yet he came down willing to us, took on flesh. And so I think he's talking about Christ and his incarnation. That's what we celebrate during Advent, Christmas time as well. So the question is this Can any human being summon Jesus to come down from heaven? And the answer is no. Can, can human beings inaugurate the, the incarnation? The answer is no. And he talks about uh, going up. And I think he's talking about resurrection here. Uh, could any human being go to the tomb in which Jesus was dead and bring him back to life? And the answer is no. Can, can any human being raise any other human being from the dead? And the answer is absolutely not. We, we can't do any of that. So we can't save ourselves. We can't bring Christ down. We can't bring Christ up. And so when it comes to our salvation, we really have nothing to do with it. Am I right? Outside of our sin, which we're really good at that, we have nothing to do with it, right? We just need forgiveness for that. Not, we can't do anything. So the reality is this. Instead of keep looking to ourselves and what we are and what we are not and what we've done and what we don't do, instead of keep looking to ourselves and woe is me or pumping ourselves up or anything like that, let's stop looking at ourselves and just start looking to Christ more and more in your life. Our discipleship strategies, our growth strategies should always begin with, let me just look to Jesus more and more in my life, right? Like, write that down. <laughs> let me just look to Jesus more and more and more and more. And so what Paul's doing right here, Paul's talking about faith. We cannot save ourselves. It must take faith. But even when we talk about faith in church, we get a little nervous on that. Because some of us will say, well, I, you know what? I just don't have a lot of faith. And some others may say, well, I have great faith. And so we think, well, there's varying degrees of faith. L let, me, let me help you with that. 
It is not the strength of your faith that saves you. It is not the size of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. And his name is Jesus. And so if you have just a wee tiny bit of faith, place that upon Jesus. And if you have a grandioso amount of Jesus or of faith, place that upon Jesus. Why? It's not anything about your faith. Just take your faith, what you have, and place it on the object of your faith, Jesus. He is the one who will save. Now, in verse 5, he says, the person who does the commands shall live by them. I think once again, he's trying to condition us to really believe that we are not saved by our commands or, or by the commands. He's saying, like, if you want to try to be saved by the law, then you're going to have to go all in on it. And we read earlier in Galatians that you have to keep all of it perfectly. And that's, that's failure. You'll, you'll never, never be able to do it. You can't, it's... The law is out of reach. The, we can't obtain the law. We, we, we can't do the law. The law is good. It's showing us the character and nature, the wills, ways, and whims of God for sure. But we, it's out of our reach. So it's a little bit confusing then. Because the law is good. The law shows us God's character and nature. The law shows us how to live and flourish. But why is it, if it's out of our reach, then what are we going to do? Well, i got an answer for you. Look at verse 8. But what does it say? He's talking about Deuteronomy 30 again. The word is, what's the word? Near you. It's near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. Parentheses. What does Paul say? That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Okay, okay. I'm not trying to trick you, so I'm going to ask you a question. What does he mean by the word of faith? It's one word. We, and it's, it's, it's connected to Jesus, so you're, you're good. It's one word. What does word of faith shorthand mean? <clears throat> what is the one word? Wait, wait, say it again. The word of faith is the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus. I interesting, Paul mentions going up and going down. I think he's talking about the incarnation, Jesus coming. I think he talks about the resurrection. So he's talking about, you know, Jesus coming back to life. And he, and he says right here, properly of Deuteronomy 30, it says the word is near you. It means this, that this gospel is right within your grasp, human. Every human, it's right within your grasp. It doesn't take a PhD or anything to be able to know Jesus. It doesn't take any of that. It doesn't take a radical, emotional uh, exaggerated supernatural experience to know Jesus. Sometimes we're led to believe you've got to have a mountaintop experience and you've got to, you know, be excited about Jesus like other people. If, if you're not, if you don't have those experiences, then it doesn't count. That's just baloney right there. Not at all. No, Jesus is near to all. Jesus is for the foolish. And Jesus is for the wise. Jesus is for the uneducated. Jesus is for the educated. Jesus is for the simple, and Jesus is for the intellectual. He came in the flesh, meaning he comes near. This is the good news of Jesus. The, uh, the law of being salvation is outside of us, out of our reach. We can't grab it, but Jesus is here. Uh, during Christmas time, we usually read the text where it talks about Jesus being Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Do you remember that? God with us. Jesus is in, in reach. That's the good news. He came to us in, in faith. That means we no longer have to work and strive to get God's favor, get God's attention, get God's approval. or any, We don't have to clean ourselves up. No, Jesus comes near us now in all of our joys, 
in all of our circumstances, in all of our sorrows, in all of our pain. It even says he's near to the faint-hearted. He, he's near to the weary. He's near to the hurting. For some of us who are in Christ, that may be us today. Just be reminded that Jesus is near. He's near. He's close. He's with us. Verse 9. He says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be, what's the word? So that means every human being needs to be saved. What are we being saved from? Really quickly, you're being saved from God. Because of our sin, God being right and good and perfect and just, he must punish sin. And so he's going to punish us for all of eternity. The Bible calls that hell. And so when we are saved, we're saved not, we're saved not only from ourselves and our own stupidity for sure, but we're saved, from, uh, we're saved from God himself. And so you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confessed and is saved. Now, previously in verse 9, we read that Jesus is Lord. Anytime we read the phrasing, Jesus is Lord in the New Testament, we should pause a minute. Because we can say Jesus is Lord pretty easy. You can say Jesus is Lord just about anywhere in the world, well, anywhere in the United States right now. You can even probably go to your work and say Jesus is Lord, and people will probably look at you and dismiss you because that's just what people do sometimes. It's okay. However, 2,000 years ago, when Paul's writing this, when the Roman Empire was in full function, uh, if you were to say out loud around the, wrong pe- uh, around the wrong people, Jesus is Lord, that can get you imprisoned or get you killed. You know why? Because in that time period, in that area, there was only one Lord, and his name was Caesar. And the phrase was common that people would say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. Now, what is the significance of calling Jesus Lord? Uh, Theologian Cranfield said it like this. He says, the confession that Jesus is Lord meant the acknowledgement that Jesus shares the name and nature, the holiness, the authority, the power, majesty, eternity of one and only true God. There is expressed in addition the sense of his ownership of those who acknowledge him uh, and their consciousness of being his property. Meaning, when we say Jesus is Lord, in the uh, language Lord there, in the Greek Septuagint, that Lord is pointing to uh, the word Yahweh. What does Yahweh remind you of? Old Testament, God. When we claim that Jesus is Lord, we're saying that he is God. He is supreme, and he is to be adored, loved, worshipped, and submitted to in all areas. That's, that's how big of a deal it is. So Caesar was uh, uh, ascribing to that. He's like, no, you call me Lord because I am God. And, and I am to be worshipped. And, and, and like, no, 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 no. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. And so when we say Jesus is Lord, that's a powerful statement. We're saying that he is God. Also in the text, if you look again in verse 9, it says you, be, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I love that phrase, raised him from the dead. What must happen for Jesus to be raised from the dead. You can throw it out there. I don't mind. Think of the mechanics there. What, what, what's got to happen to raise Jesus from the dead? What must happen first? He's got to die. What must happen before he dies? Well, there's a lot of things. As I said earlier, Jesus has always existed. 2,000 years ago, the incarnation happened, which incarnation just means in the flesh. Carne, like carne asada, meat. Jesus came in the flesh is what it means. 
And so he was fully God and fully man, and he comes and he lives perfectly, obeying the laws of God. We should marvel at that right now. Jesus obeyed every want, way, will, and law of God perfectly as a human being just like you and I. He was perfect. I meant that he was a human being like you and I. We're imperfect and sinners. He didn't. That's what I meant. And so he lit, and then, and then he does something unique. He goes to the cross willingly, perfectly innocent, as an Old Testament sacrifice, as the one and only spotless lamb, to die for us, to become a curse for us. And so he died on the cross, so for those who trust in him may be forgiven. The cross is a big deal. There's no Christianity without the cross. There's no resurrection without the cross. We're going to sell, uh, observe Good Friday coming up on Good Friday as well, the, before uh, Easter Sunday. And then he was buried in the tomb for three days. And then three days later, what happened? Back to life. And then for 40 days, the Bible says, he was seen by over 500 people. It'd be one thing if they kind of faked it. They had a, a stunt double or something like that. And a couple of people were like, yeah, yeah, kind of looks like Jesus. No, no. It's like 500 people were like, that's Jesus right there. And then, to top it all off, after that 40 days, he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns and prepares to one day to bring heaven and earth together and to fulfill all the promises of God's word. So when we read a simple little phrase like that of like he raised from the dead, it means, just, it means more than just he came back to life. It's, it's implying of his whole life, his whole work, and his whole everything. Now, I bet you if I ask you, do you believe that, you would say yes, right? Do you, do you believe what I just said? Give me a little nod. Do you believe what I just said? You, you believe what I just said? Yeah. Do you believe that? Do you, do you believe it? Yeah. Um, so the question is, well, well, Ty, is this text saying, if I just believe those facts, I just said with my mouth, yeah. Like, do I believe, if I believe those facts because I profess Jesus, does that mean I'm saved? Sproul was helpful on this. R.C. Sproul. Really smart guy. He says, we have to understand that a profession of faith alone will never justify or save us. The possession of faith, not the profession of it, is the necessary condition for our justification or to be saved. That is why Paul does not say that we will be saved if we confess with our mouths. He adds a condition you must believe in your hearts. Now, what does it mean to believe in your heart? Well, to believe in your heart, we can believe in our minds facts, and that's good. Facts are good. Knowledge is good. I'm all for that. But we must believe it in our heart. What does it mean to believe in your heart? Well, uh, if you look through the Bible, the heart is known as the centrality of you as a human being. It's the center of you. It's the wholeness of you. The heart is, uh, is the essence of you. Now, hearts are very important, am I right? Medically speaking, you can't live without a heart. I wouldn't say try. So you probably know some heartless people, but irregardlessly, there's a heart in there pumping nonetheless. And so, um, but what does the heart do? The heart is pumping blood to every bit of your body. And what happens if the effects of the heart pumping the blood does not go to certain parts of the body. What happens to those parts of the body? Anybody? They die. The same is true in our lives. 
If we have trusted Jesus and believe and, and, and confess and believe in our heart and all that kind of stuff, and yet the effects of Jesus have not been pumped throughout all areas of our life, what's going to happen in those areas of our lives? Let's pause for a second and talk about that then. We may, as Christians sitting here, and, and uh, you know, I, I believe that we confess and believe and we're Christians, absolutely repent and by, by faith trust Jesus. But there's a part of the process of sanctification to where there are some areas of our lives we do not allow Jesus to be Lord in. Would you agree? And, and you're like, well, I'm not sure where. Let me ask you this question. Um, is there any, are there any areas in your life where you see a hint of death? Not, not in like the fallen world brokenness, but like you, you can just see some things like, hey, I know these areas. I'm not, I'm not allowing Jesus to be Lord over these areas because there's little pockets, pockets of death. Because you think about it, our heart is holistically us and our hearts are very important. Uh, the second wisest person who ever lived, his name was Solomon because Jesus was always the wisest. Solomon said this. He says, keep your heart with all vigilance for from it flows the spring of life. And so perhaps some of us, we might not be keeping our hearts well and there may be no spring of life going to certain areas. So, so let's, let me just ask a few questions. Like where do you potentially see some death because Jesus is not Lord in, in that area of your life? Is it in your relationships? I mean, think about it. Maybe you've got some relationships with your parents to where uh, parenting is tough. Parenting's rough. Parenting kids, I mean, that's a very humbling endeavor. Am I right? And none of us get it right. None of us get it right. But sometimes we, you know, we have good parents, not so good parents, but sometimes we blame our parents for everything and we become hard and we become grudgeful and we become just, uh, you know, bitter and we, we won't honor them, as the word says, and we won't forgive them. Maybe that's an area where Jesus is not Lord because Jesus talks about forgiving. I know reconciliation is a whole other situation. Maybe in our, our marriages, in our relationships, to where it's like, hey, in, in our marriages, there's just a lot of death going on there because like we've been Lord of our marriage or something else has been Lord of our marriage and not Jesus has been Lord of our marriage and we can see some fractures, some breaking. Maybe it's in our parenting where our, parent, or our children have been the parents in the home. And, and the order in which the Lord Jesus and called for his lordship has not been displayed, and we can see some death there. E even in singleness. Sometimes when we're single, and like it may be a very, very difficult time of singleness to where like you're lonely, and you're like, ah, and, you, and you're like, that man or that woman is what's really going to fulfill my life. They're going to be my savior, not the savior. And they, Jesus is not lord of that. It could be our finances to where like, Jesus, you can have everything you want, just don't touch my money. Because my money is attached to my heart, as Jesus says. And so there's lordship. It may be time. It, it may be our control. Any control freaks in here? Hey, raise the hand of a control freak in here, if you know one. <laughs> I'm kidding. It's like, you're, you're killing my marriage. Um, isn't that a lordship issue? Because if we just worry, 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 it's basically we're not trusting the Lord. We're just trusting ourselves to fix it. I've always heard that worrying is just basically praying to yourself. Perhaps. Let's pause. It's, it's the Lent season. I got, a, I got a scotch of time left. Let's pause. Let's just think for a minute. I think it's a good time to pause and think. Maybe, maybe just a prayer of the mind and heart. Lord, is there 
any area of my life where I'm blocking you out and not allowing you to be Lord. Perhaps in the season of Lent, you've thought, I should maybe set this down. This is taking too much real estate in my heart. I should probably set this down. I'm running to it too much for comfort, and it's kind of becoming my idol and savior. Perhaps you were thinking about during Lent giving something up, and you're like, I'm not ready to give that up. Let's pause a moment and think. Just right where you just think, just dwell. Maybe ask the Lord. What if, what if during this season of Lent, when it comes to these things, it's not this guilt and shame like, oh, I shouldn't, and I, oh, I didn't, and oh, I'm bad, and all. What if, what if we were to reverse that a little bit and think, what if the, what if the Lord's called me to, to say, I've got something better for you than that? And what if it's a good thing? Like, what if, what if he's saying, hey, you, you, you've thought that this is going to bring you life? Nah, that's not going to return from that. Repent. Trust me, I've, I've, got, I've designed life. I know what flourishing is. So instead of just, ah, woe is me and I'm bad and I'm awful, what if we're like, no, oh, the Lord is really good and like, I'm not leading myself to life. I'm leading myself to death, as the Bible says. I'm going to trust him and be led to life. Maybe there's something to put down. Maybe there's a habit to change, a pattern to change. I don't know. Confess and believe with your whole heart. I think that's what he's talking about, that Jesus is Lord. Verse 10. For what the heart one believes and is justified. That's made right. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Justified and saved, interchangeable words right there. It just means that you're right with God. Heart and mouth. I think about the heart as kind of that inward belief of like that inward furniture of your heart of like how you've arranged it and, and where Christ is king and Lord over all that. And then mouth is like the confession. That's the outward. That's the action behind it. Uh, heart and mouth here, I don't think he means a, stu- a two-step process. Uh, I think it's the same thing of believing that, Lord, that Jesus is Lord. It, it, it's like the different side of the same, same coin. Now, he talks about confess our faith. What does it mean to confess our faith? I think as Christians, confessing our faith is what we do all the time in the life of Christ. I mean, think about it. Like, we confess our faith when we talk about Jesus, am I right? When we're with brothers and sisters in Christ, we're talking about Jesus. We confess our faith when we're with people who don't know Christ and we're telling them about Jesus or we're telling them about the goodness of Jesus. That's confessing our faith. We're confessing our faith when we see baptism. When someone is baptized, they're confessing their faith as well. We're confessing our faith when we tell people like, hey, I have sinned against the Lord and perhaps you. Will you forgive me? And I'm going to go to the Lord for forgiveness as well. That we're confessing our faith that we believe Jesus is the one who saves. We're confessing our faith when we turn from idolatry and turn from our sin. This is a life of confessing our faith. And so it's a confessional life that we live. Verse 11. He says, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
What does everyone mean? Everyone. Who puts their faith in him. Will not be put to shame. We talked about this last week. That's called, uh, that's a very... Um, in times, like when you meet Jesus or Jesus returns to meet you, that you will not be humiliated. You will not be put to shame. Why? You, you, you've been saved by Jesus. And that you bear, not your shame, but you bear the name of Jesus. And so you won't be put to shame. Verse 12 and 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Who are the people he's talking to within the church of Rome? Jewish people who came to know Christ? Greek people. He says there's no distinction between the two of you when it comes to salvation. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's, that's beautiful. You don't have to clean up. You don't have to change up. Today you've heard good news. You've heard this gospel, this word of faith. If you have never trusted Jesus, Jesus is for you. And Jesus is mighty to save. He is near. You don't have to do any kind of spiritual jujitsu to make that happen. You just basically call out on the name of the Lord. Like, Jesus, you are Lord. Forgive me of my sin. I place my faith in you. If that's you today, please see one of us. Talk to us. Go to prayer point on your way out. Talk to someone. Say, hey, I'm trusting Jesus today. Let us know. We're going to baptize you today. We're baptizing. We don't have any for this gathering, but uh, at 1030 and 1230. And so don't miss that opportunity but for the rest of us, I love, I love this, that all who call upon the Lord will be saved. That he is mighty to save. That he's faithful to save. And that as we look at the scriptures, we're to see Christ in all the scriptures. And so this gives us opportunity just to marvel at Jesus. And so I want to take, and I'll have a little bit of silence like we do every Sunday, especially during the season of Lent, and give us an opportunity to marvel at Jesus. Maybe he's called you out in some type of sin or some area of life where he doesn't have a jurisdiction that you're not allowing. You can confess and repent. But let's just take a time in our minds to marvel at Jesus, to look to Jesus. I'll call you out of it in just a second in prayer, and then we'll go to the Lord's table together. So if you would, just join me in a bit of silence. Allow me to read the goodness of God's word over us from Colossians. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. 
And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. And Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. For in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus, his own cross. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you have superintended it for thousands of years and delivering it to us so we may be confident that this is your word. And we're just thankful throughout the whole thing we see Jesus, that he is the Messiah promised of old, that he is the one who will come and fulfill all your promises. And so, Jesus, we thank you. And Jesus, we call you Lord. Holy Spirit, would you help us, empower us? We all fail and stumble in different ways and varying degrees, but would you help us um, just make Christ Lord of just more and more of our lives? Holy Spirit, would you help us to hold back nothing and no area in our lives? Holy Spirit, would you show us where we have Sweetly convict us. Draw us into the, to repentance, which is just the newness of, of flourishing in life. Holy Spirit, as you're doing this, I just pray you would just form in us the likeness of Christ more and more. Because that's truly how we're designed to live. That's how we'll love you more and how we'll love each other more and just live in the ways you've called us to in your will. I pray as you do this, you would just grow our heart, our affections and desires for you more and more. I, I pray that, um, I don't know, just the things of the world would grow strangely dim and uh, it would begin to lose its taste to us, to where we'd be more concerned about you and your kingdom and how to uh, proclaim you and your kingdom more and more to this world around us than anything else. I pray you would unite our hearts together I pray you'd truly make us one. And, and as you do that, um, would, would you give us joy? Would you give us peace? And would you help us, Lord? We, we ask all this for the name and fame of Jesus, we pray. Amen.